Hi guys, welcome back to the Apex Delta Coaching Podcast. My name is Kieran Moore and I'm the head coach and owner of Apex Delta Coaching. On this show, my aim is to help educate, inform and drive you to get stronger, fitter and more resilient as an athlete and human. I'll discuss different topics in strength, fitness, mindset and more, as well as talking with guests on their area of expertise. Today, I was joined by Dr. Phil Price. Phil is a senior lecturer in strength and conditioning alongside applied biomechanics at St. Mary's University in London. In addition to his role as an educator, he is a researcher within the areas of sports performance, lower limb injury and rehabilitation, as well as recently being involved with research into exercise in microgravity for use by astronauts in space. Finally, Phil is an SNC coach actively working with clients and in the past in professional rugby and other sports. Today, we discussed Phil's various roles across education, research and coaching, and looked at some of the insights he has gained through these roles and his experiences so far. With that, let's get into today's show. Cool. cool. So, uh, back for another episode. Um, here today with Phil. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Phil is actually one of my lecturers at university. Um, so, it'll be cool to get his perspective on some of the bits we're going to talk today. So, first off, what would be really great is if you could just give us a brief intro, like who you are, like your kind of journey so far through academia and coaching. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, my name is Dr. Phil Price. I currently lecture at St. Mary's University. I'm predominantly more of the, on the biomechanics side of SNC. Um, so I teach most of the things around the research behind the biomechanics involving a set of movements. So I know Kieran, you uh, were in a number of my lectures regarding sprinting, agility, all of those types of movements. Uh, and I currently run a module on our biomechanics masters as well. Uh, but before that, um, I was an SNC coach. So I was an SNC coach with Eating Trail Finders. This was before they were, you know, pushing for premiership uh, promotion uh, and did some work with some TAC athletes as well. And uh, around that time, I must have been about 23, 24, uh, I managed to get a job at St. Mary's where I started work as a graduate assistant. So I was teaching full time. Uh, and at the same time, I was doing my master's, um, which was in strength and conditioning. Uh, once I'd finished my master's in around 2014, I started on my PhD, uh, which it took a bit of a different turn, really. I wanted to look at the knee uh, because my knees were absolutely rubbish. My knees seemed to fall apart all the time. So the, the curiosity behind that was, okay, well, my knees seem to be rubbish. Why is this the case? Uh, and I went down more of a bioengineering route with that. So I used a mathematical model of the knee uh, to uh, investigate what goes on in it. And uh, the population I actually used in the end was uh, osteoarthritis patients. Um, that I graduated from my PhD, got my doctorate in 2018. Uh, and ever since then, I've got involved with more projects, uh, mainly towards the sort of performance sort of injury and more occupational side of things really i haven't really gone down the health route which i thought i may do the snc and health route i've decided i love snc i love ultimately human performance uh, so i have got fingers and pies in sort of yeah, the um, performance injury side of things and when i say occupational and i'm sure we'll discuss this a bit later i'm currently working with uh, a group which is looking at trying to get astronauts to jump in space as a, a form of exercise that will hopefully reduce the amount of uh, bone mineral density loss they experience while up there so that's kind of my background it's 
yeah, I've been teaching at St. Mary's for over 11 years now. So that kind of makes up a large part of my, um, my history, really. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. So I suppose you've, um, so when you're in, in one place for such a long period of time, you suppose, I suppose you really get to get to learn about obviously the, the, the place itself, but then the industry as a whole, you're kind of, I suppose you build working relationships with those around you and it leads to kind of some of the more exciting things that you end up getting to do, like the sort of the space research currently. And, um, then obviously teaching, I suppose the, the next generation of, of coaches, practitioners, mm. and potentially research academics as well. Yeah. It ultimately ends up being great for networking. If you know what I mean? Um, I was very lucky getting the job that I did because, um, SNC was kind of a new concept at the time. So my role, if, if you had my role go, uh, available now, like there'll be loads and loads of people with much better CVs than I had when I applied for it. So I got into it early and I really appreciate that because like, I'm very much very lucky. Uh, and just because St. Mary's was one of the first SNC courses in the, well, it was the first SNC uh, undergraduate degree in the UK and the first master's. So the first undergraduate degree started in 2007 and the first master's in SNC started in 2010. Uh, and that was all at all at St. Mary's. So, you know, that's really quite a good opportunity to, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, and through that, I've met so many people that have gone on to go more SNC research. Some people have gone on to, um, you know, be clinical specialists in SNC, working with elite teams. Uh, you know, there's so many people that I know that I try and keep into contact with because it's just great opportunities to further my own learning. I, I don't really like to just, be like a true expert in one area i have interests in the broad spectrum of snc um so that's why i want to try and speak to as many people as possible and just further my learning was was so that was that route through kind of higher education so from kind of undergraduate through to masters through mm. to your phd and sort of doctorate and then obviously into being a lecturer as well so was that always was that the intended route or was that just something that opportunities opportunities came up and you kind of took them and ran with it yeah so interestingly uh i became a personal trainer quite early on uh my aim when i went to university my my undergraduate degree is in sport health and exercise science and the reason i came to st mary's to do that is because i wanted to become a personal trainer i wanted to train others i wanted to coach and i managed to start personal training at the end of my first year and by the by my third year, I'd actually started my own self-employed personal training business. And I quickly realized that while I enjoyed coaching, I didn't want it to be the only thing that I did. I really liked learning about the human body and how so many different factors can affect its performance. So it was the learning aspect I loved. Uh, so I quickly realized that actually why the best way to learn is to teach. And so I started looking at opportunities to, to be able to teach this type of information. And I kept in very good contact with John Goodwin, who was the program director at the time of the undergraduate degree in SNC. And I applied for the graduate assistant role when I finished my degree and I didn't get it. 
that role actually went to Alex Natera, to a very well-known SNC coach. Um, he eventually left about 18 months later to pursue a full-time role in SNC. I think it was in Australia. Um, so when he left, I applied for the role again, and fortunately, I got it. So it was, if you think about it, really quite a quick transition because if someone wanted to get into SNC now, it'd probably be a longer journey from working with a number of different a number of different types of populations leading into sort of teaching and education, whereas I got into it quite quickly. Um, I definitely think that's been very beneficial to me. So, yeah, I was very lucky. Is it kind of almost the idea of like being thrown in at the deep end and kind of having to adapt and, and learn on the job versus maybe going through kind of an extended period of preparation ahead of a, a role potentially? Yeah, definitely. Like I was thrown very much into the deep end. So my first lecture was in front of over 100 people. And I had not actually taught before, <laughs> but I was teaching to such a huge number of people. Um, luckily, I, I kind of took to it quite well. Um, certainly very, very nervous. But you just, once you talk through, and you probably experience this in, in like assessments where you're doing presentations, once you get through that first slide, everything starts to come off the tongue a little bit more. Um, my teaching style has certainly changed since then, but being able to just go, okay, you're doing these lectures. Um, being part-time did also mean that I could use that extra time to really improve investigate and learn about the topic so I could be able to talk about it in depth rather than just give like a brief overview um yeah th those are all things that really actually helped I think it's it's definitely helped me very much so like I think now we we let people in a bit more slowly let's you know get you teaching in front of smaller groups more practical based before you start doing these sort of lectures in front of a lot of people um however I think I was quite thankful that I was just thrown in the deep end you you know you sink or swim don't you and fortunately i swam yeah yeah i think sometimes yeah it's that that's often the best way to to learn kind of learn on the job yeah yeah type approach which i mean in the snc industry as a whole is quite prevalent because there's no end of mentorships internships and other such kind of like opportunities that are essentially that they're learn on the job type mm type things where yeah you might be asked to have some requisite understanding before you 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 sort of jump into those things but a lot of it's based around yeah coming here and learning as you do rather than just the the kind of maybe pure academic sense of just learning to learn um mm. and then maybe not taking that into then the practical application as much as obviously then what you are required to do in in an actual job like so that's probably a good next place to think about it is like what's what's your perspective then as a lecturer as a practitioner of taking learning in an academic sense and then applying mm. that within a practical application be that as a coach be that as a researcher whatever that might be mm. yeah i mean i think i always view the practical side of things as your experimental area it's like your canvas if you're an artist you you, you know just have a blank canvas you think cool what am i going to do with that uh, and then you can be a bit more creative of your approach and try new things i don't see why working within the practical aspects of snc is is any different um, and you need that because that's where you're going to generate the ideas that's going to 
make you think, oh, I have a question here. I'm going to investigate that further. And then that's where you go away and learn about it. And that's where the academic side comes in. So it's a nice little continuum or progression that you get that, you know, you, you practice, you create, you fail, you reflect, you then resort back to any information that you can find, which may answer those questions. And you go back to the canvas, you go back to the practical environment, test out your new ideas, you're going back and forth, back and forth. So it isn't just like, oh, learn this, then apply it. So really, like, wherever you get on on that continuum, you could probably work your way in a direction that could be quite favorable. So if you get thrown in the deep end, you learn something, you fail, okay, let's work our way back to the back the continuum. Uh, start investigating the questions that you have, find some answers and then head back to the uh, either the lecture theatre or the practical environment to test your new ideas out. Did they work? Did they not? Then you go back and forth. Um, so technically, yeah, that continuum, you could you could probably enter the sort of academic side and work your way to the, the practical side. That should be fine. The problem is, is when people, I think, just sit in one aspect of the continuum. Um, you need to actually find some form of way where you're going to apply something uh, and learn from it, you know, and fail. S and C, it's very much, you know, working with with athletes, uh, with a, an academic. It might be more in the lab. Things go right, things go well. You didn't get the answer that you thought you would, but it's still that back and forth between an area where you can really apply ideas and utilize your creativity and generate more questions. So then you can go back uh, and learn a bit more about the subject before. Uh, heading back to the the drawing board to try and uh, find out, you know, how how does it work? What can I do to improve this? You know, there's all very generic questions, but you can kind of get my process of you know going back and forth between uh, the canvas and uh, the the learning stage. Do you see that echoed maybe within like S and C coaching then? So those that are kind of evidence-based to a fault potentially versus those that kind of lean more on their personal experiences and kind of more um yeah like they're they're practical understanding and things is there maybe there's probably those two traditional camps is Mm. there space then for there be to be more of a blurring of those lines oh definitely and i think that does happen and those are the ones or those are the practitioners that are often the best i think people end up sitting on an area of that continuum where they feel most strong, where they feel most comfortable, whether it would be like strict evidence-based versus, you know, I'm not going to listen to evidence-based. I've got all this personal experience. I know what I'm doing. You know, that's quite a crude way of describing the two camps. Uh, But yeah, you do get some people that just stay in one area of the continuum because they feel comfortable in that area. Where I think the best practitioners and probably the ones that have become most comfortable are the ones that are constantly moving back and forth. Uh, You know, they do whatever strategy that they need to do to answer the questions that they have. So, you know, whatever works, you know, you've got to be adaptable. We talk about our athletes needing to be adaptable, but we need to be adaptable with our approach. And ultimately, that means, you know, going back and forth from the research and from the more creative, uh, more chaotic side of coaching and in the, you know, that, that professional environment. Uh, as long as you can adapt moving in and out when you need to, uh, you should be able to progress really quite nicely. I suppose a key point between going from research to practice in that sense is that research is heavily controlled for mm. the reason of producing valid valid results and and sort of scientific 
rigor behind it so that you can have confidence in the results you're getting but then obviously when you take that into a practical setting that doesn't always i mean rarely probably if ever um applies to, mm. to real life scenarios so i suppose it's that balance between this is what the research might suggest here's the population we actually work with and the athletes we work with and here's how we can apply that to those those athletes yeah, yeah I, definitely i think that's where research sometimes gets a bit of a bad rep it's because you have to control a lot of variables to get us you know to get an understand uh, an interpretation of of the results people often think that's well you know sport is chaotic that doesn't what you've just found there does not apply here was that well it does provide us with some information and research is there to guide us it's like okay here's a piece of research they did this type of methods they use this population they controlled these factors and they found this okay that's one piece of information i can use if i wish um and then obviously you do that multiple times because we read multiple papers and you form some form of conclusion and then you use that to make some kind of decision based on all the different types of information that's coming from you in the professional environment now it may apply it may not if you're completely rigid to like well the, the research has said this then you're not taking into account uh just how variable the sort of chaotic landscape of, of, of coaching is um if you're ignoring that from like the other side of the spectrum then you don't really have a true understanding of where your decisions as a coach have come from so again it just shows how important you know utilizing both is um yeah I've, I've never really understood why research has got a bit of a bad rep recently it's because people think oh it's science it's giving you the answers it doesn't give you the answers it's giving you an understanding of what we currently know and you know, you've seen with systematic reviews right a lot of the final uh message from them is like okay this is what we know uh, a lot of the studies aren't great for these reasons more research is needed so when we criticize the research we're, we're quite thorough in that sense but then you get someone else that look at that systematic review results and go well that systematic review has told me this so i need to do it is that well calm down you know it's giving you some information but you have to understand its limitations and then as soon as you understand its limitations you can then make a decision for yourself whether you believe it to be uh, there's some truth into it whether you should ignore it how can you apply it how can you not um you know it's there to guide and that's why we need more and more research because the more research we have the better guidance we feel we may have but whether we need to get out of this thinking of like it's telling us what to do now it's giving us information that we can use to make decisions and there's a clear distinction between the two so to to that end you think the onus is then more on the the coaches and practitioners to assimilate and like critically analyze what they're actually reading from that research rather mm. than it is the responsibility of the researchers to provide that essentially so is, is it the coaches that need to on a whole obviously the coaching industry on a whole needs to get better at reading research essentially i think so but i also think there's going to be sometimes where i mean the english language is a powerful tool it really is quite powerful and the way you write uh your findings your results can heavily influence how the person reading it is going to interpret so ultimately 
I could be really biased with how I perceive my certain results. And that might then bias the person reading it to think about these results and interpret them in a certain way. Alternatively, I could write it as neutral as possible. And then someone comes in and just interprets it in a completely different way uh, and takes a fire uh, and uses that to make sort of coaching decisions. It gets quite blurry because there's never going to be one way where I write something and everyone's the person that reads it is going to believe exactly what I said. They're going to interpret it in their own way. And I think sometimes that can be quite good. That's really quite creative. That shows critical thinking skills. You know, you shouldn't necessarily take my word for gospel, for example. Uh, but sometimes it can have the negative thing where someone's misinterpreted it, it, the information and then used it inappropriately, maybe. So it's a tricky thing. Like, I think to answer your question, it's it's both sides. I think researchers need to be very honest, open and very neutral how they uh, write up their results. Uh, but also we need to be very open and neutral when ab absorbing those findings and seeing how they apply to us. I suppose realistically it's, it's impossible to fully separate yourself from your biases yeah. and from your kind of lens of looking at things. But I suppose it mm. is a case of maybe it's asking better questions of, of the research of yourself and of your own biases and kind of leaning towards that more neutral standpoint of viewing it for what it is and not mm. coming into it maybe with a, a preconceived idea or, or um, kind of angle that you're, you're trying to approach it from. Yeah. And that's difficult. It's, you know, it's one, it's hard to um, know your own biases because they probably wouldn't be a bias if you knew about it, <laughs> if you knew about the bias, you'd probably be more, more open about something. And I think that's something everyone gets better. The more, more stuff they learn, the more realize they don't have the right answers. So they start uh, approaching new information with more of an open uh, approach, but it, yeah, it's really difficult. And I, I hope that anyone that goes through a degree at St. Mary's, those are the key skills that they, that they learn that openness, that ability to critique something, the ability to um, not take everything at face value. Uh, I remember I provided a sort of like, it was like a TED talk for St. Mary's at one point. And I gave five, five bullet points, which I thought were really important for being a better learner or finding your own way of learning. And one of them was uh, read to learn, don't read to be told what to do. And ultimately, is you're, you're trying to take in information that's going to improve your knowledge and understanding and your openness and how you can use that information to influence decision making elsewhere. Um, and that's a skill that we all need. I think sometimes we get into the trap of reading something and then go just assuming that's true. Well, this person's read that. I've read this, so this must be true. I've read that, so this must be true. So really, you should be as critical as possible with everything. Have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? No. Heard of it. There's <laughs> there's a scene where some guy is a university student is showing up to Ben Affleck uh, trying to be a bit of a big dick player because he's trying to impress some girl and he's saying well this person said this and this person said that and this person said that. There's a way of like showing off his knowledge. Mm. Uh, and then Matt Damon comes along and just sort of obliterates him with a different viewpoint. And then start saying, well, 
clearly you're not very good because you're just plagiarizing. You're just copying what these other people have said. You haven't actually formed your own opinion. And that's what worries me. I think people sometimes see information uh, on an infographic or on Instagram and go, oh, have you heard about this? This is this. They haven't actually read the infographic and gone, oh, that's quite interesting. I wonder how they found that out. Then they go further and read the paper where it's come from. Uh, and then they might go a little bit deeper to try and find more about this information. You know, people read the infographic and they stop there. And that's not the role of an infographic. It's, it's to provide some information. It's, it's to give you a little bit so you can go and further read up on the topic. Um, so what I'm worried about is that we are becoming people that read to be told what to do. And then we try and show off that, uh, that knowledge by just repeating it. We, we don't want that. We want to be able to critically appraise everything that we read and form our own opinions. Hmm. I suppose that, that, that come, comes back to the idea of trying to create more than you consume and not being stuck in a consumption-based approach where mm. you, you are just consuming lots of information and then just kind of regurgitating that like verbatim rather than, as you say, taking in that information, taking maybe the parts of it that you find are applicable to your population and actually mm. then asking more questions about Kaiko, why, why is this a thing? Why does this work the way it does? And mm. taking it a little bit further and probably deeper than just, you say taking information on and then just regurgitating it straight back mm. out again without really having ever formed kind of any deeper high or deeper or higher level thinking around that mm. which I, I find is probably content aside within the university sort of academic structure because i feel like most of it's based on textbooks so you, you can learn a lot of the content through those same those textbooks it's the it's the kind of the soft skills. It's the other stuff you get. It's the ability to critically think. It's the ability to read research and kind of understand beyond just a simple. I, I can now repeat this. It's it's yes. It's, it's all of those skills that are probably more valuable than the content itself. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And you probably notice that whenever there's a lecture, it's normally accompanied by some kind of seminar. And certainly the way I view it is that if there's a two hour lecture, okay, that's where you're taking in the information, not all of it's going to go in because it's impossible to obtain all of that information in two hours, but then you revisit it in the seminar and then it's an opportunity to critically appraise it, ask questions, be argumentative almost, you know, that's when you're going to find one, your way of learning and two, have a better understanding because you've, um, engaged with the content you've had discussions you've you've maybe agreed with some of it you may have disagreed with some of it but that gives you an opportunity to form your way of learning and in turn that will help you form your own opinion on on the topic and once you have that that's going to help with your own decision making when you might want to apply it in a in a practical sense so what were your perspective so say you're talking to a prospective student prospective snc coach someone who's moving into this industry is, is considering coming to university, what would your advice to that end be to that individual? Mm. Well, uh, when I was running the degree program at the undergraduate level, uh, I would do the open day and I'd always try and encourage what I call the three C's. Um, I want everyone to be critical, curious and creative because um, ultimately <clears throat> I want people to one, 
be curious because I want them to want them to learn and investigate more. They don't have that curiosity in the topic that's not going to give them that drive to look further into what makes these scientific principles either true or untrue. Um, I want them to be critical because I want them to not get to that point where they get told something and then they just automatically think it's true. I want them to question everything. Um, might be that they do take it on as as true or they believe what that person is saying and they've taken it on and formed their own opinion. But ultimately, we need to make sure that we are as critical as possible. Um, and then from that, I'd want them to be creative. And I mean creative by, okay, you've critically appraised this information. You've got your interpretation of it. So what are you going to do with it? Because ultimately, you want to do something which is going to then lead to more questions. So then you can, you know, go back to the curious bit and start investigating further. Uh, and ultimately, to be creative, we need to ask very creative questions within ourselves. So what happens if I did that? Okay, I've, I've read up that if you did this, this would happen. But what happens if I add this, this and this? What would happen then? Well, there's no research on that. Cool, let's try it out and see what happens. Then once it, you get that information, you can reflect and you go revert back. So I would, anyone coming to university at any level, those are the, the three things that I would want them to be able to end their degree and say, yeah, actually I've improved in these areas. And, you know, this takes time. Like my ability to be critical, curious and creative was so different from when I finished my PhD compared to when I finished my undergraduate degree. These skills come with time, with failure, with uh, repeated learning. You know, there's a number of things that have to happen before you start finding your own way of learning. Um, and ultimately, you know, you get there at the end, but everyone does it at different speeds. So um, that's why I, I quite like the fact that it's quite a long process because it gives you an opportunity and keeps you in an environment where you have the opportunity uh, to to learn these skills. Yeah, I suppose you could you could you could condense the content itself down into a, a much shortened period of time. But mm. I suppose it comes to that, that that idea of kind of purposeful practice, like ten thousand hours, whatever you want to kind of term that. Like it's the idea of you have to put in a certain amount of work to perfect or reach mastery in a skill. Mm. And if you then condense a certain thing down into a shorter period of time, you're just not going to be building enough practice at those mm. skills and being able to coach, being able to you know, stand in front of people and talk, being able to learn effectively, being able to kind of, yeah, look at research, assimilate it, be creative, be critical. All of those things are skills that, that, that do take time to develop so mm. there's an argument to be made that yeah you could condense it down into a short period of time but maybe those three four plus years spent sort of repeating these these um tasks these are uh, skills mm. is actually going to pay off in the long run yeah yeah absolutely so moving then into a bit of a different kind of uh, um different approach now a different line of questioning like digging into your role a bit as a researcher. So your kind of areas of, of expertise, if you like, the areas that you've spent your kind of researching career so far, like looking into, like obviously early on through your doctorate, what was what was the focus then? As in skills that I was trying to learn or just the, um, the actual topic I was trying yeah, to... Yeah, topic and sort of then the skills within that that you developed. Mm. So 
I utilize a, a musculoskeletal model, which is kind of like a mathematical representation of a biological system, which in my case was uh, the lower limb. Uh, it had a bit more detail around the knee. So that's why I was using this particular one. And it was developed by my uh, PhD supervisor, Dr. Dan Clether. So I was then taking what he'd created and then used it in more of a, a practical sense. So we, well, I took it and tried to determine it's more so from a point of validity. You know, if it's estimating like forces between the bones in your knee or different muscle forces within the limb, like how accurate are they? Like they could spew out some numbers, but we don't actually know it actually represents the biological tissue that it's trying to, to represent. So we did a bit more information on that. And we also looked into its uh, reliability because ultimately for something to be valid, to actually show what it's supposed to be representing, it has to be reliable as well, because if it can't repeatedly do what it's supposed to do, then clearly it's not valid. Uh, so we looked around its ability to do that. Uh, and then I used it to investigate how um, those with knee osteoarthritis um, you know, walked and went up and down stairs. Uh, what's quite handy with this model is that, yes, you get load going through the knee, but it was able to partition that and estimate what goes on in the different compartments of the knee. So you might know that there's a medial compartment, so the one that's uh, nearer the inner side of your knee, and a lateral compartment, so it's like the outer side of your knee. Uh, and ultimately, the inner side of your knee uh, has thicker cartilage because it tends to take around 70 to 80% usually of the load during everyday tasks like walking, going upstairs and all that sort of thing. Um, but because it takes a lot of load, often when osteoarthritis starts, it can tend to start in that particular part of the knee. Usually osteoarthritis will start in one small area and then just start spreading throughout the rest of the knee. So what I wanted to do, especially when going upstairs, because that's a, uh, an activity of daily living, which those that are that have um, that have osteoarthritis, uh, you know, it causes them pain, so they struggle with it. So I wanted to really see what goes on at the knee, and ultimately, I, I compared those with knee osteoarthritis with healthy controls. And you do start, start to see differences between loading between the two compartments, but also the difference in, in difference in total load that goes through the knee. The osteoarthritis um, uh, participants were <laughs> trying to offload the knee as much as possible. Uh, and the pain you get with osteoarthritis is really intermittent. Like one day you could wake up and you've got a really bad knee day. And then the next day, the same task that caused you pain the day before caused you no pain whatsoever. And we don't really understand that. So what I then further did was I tried to separate the osteoarthritis group into two groups, one which experienced pain when walking upstairs and one, one group that didn't. And I mean, when I say didn't experience pain, they didn't experience pain in the knee at that point of walking up the stairs. And you still see that they, those that did or didn't feel pain still walk the same. They're still doing everything they can to try and offload that knee because they're worried about pain. It causes them discomfort. It affects their quality of life. So it affects how they load that joint. Um, because they're not loading that joint, the muscles that support that joint act differently as well because they're not being used in the same way. Um, so then you've got to, you may be familiar with, okay, we've got, uh, those with early stage osteoarthritis, we want to try and delay them having some kind of knee operation. 
we need to try and strengthen the muscles around the knee because that's going to generate some um, ability for the limb to stabilize itself properly. And even though the, the forces might be a little bit higher, they're not necessarily going to be higher than healthy uh, participants. They're going to be sort of at the same level. So you'd like to think that the degradation of the, the cartilage in the knee isn't going to be as much. Um, so that would ultimately be the aim. It seems a bit contra contradictory, really. Uh, this is how we've interpreted my results anyway. And there's a paper released uh, about a year ago on it. Nice quick plug there. Um, but uh, it was kind of, you know, the ultimate uh, results, what we were trying to convey was that these osteoarthritis patients were trying to offload the knee and we might want them to expose that knee to more loads so that their movement and their muscle forces and the support that they're getting is actually going to be more similar to the healthy lot. Now you might think, well, they've got osteoarthritis. Why are you trying to load it? Don't you want to offload them? So well, it, that has negative effects as well. They, if they don't load that knee completely, then the, the tissues around it don't get used. They don't get stimulated. So they don't act as the way they should. And then you might be overloading the other knee, which doesn't have osteoarthritis, which then in turn leads to osteoarthritis in both legs. So there's, you know, there's, there's different things that we found. We tried to interpret those results as honestly as we could. Um, ultimately, that was my, that was my PhD. And I used that model for yeah, osteoarthritis patients, but I want to now use that model uh, in a more performance-based setting. So whether that might be someone that's injured or, or someone that's not injured and we're trying to improve jump performance, for example. I think it has a lot of scope to invest, be used further. That was going to be my next question, yeah, as in so what kind of applications do you see that that same modelling software, that same modelling process then mm. taken from a clinically unhealthy or, or kind of compromised population into then performance-based performance based population? Yeah. Well, at the moment, it, you know, it, because it's quite a complex, there's complex mathematics towards it, it takes a long time to solve. So I don't think it's something that you could just marker someone up, they walk, and then all of a sudden you see the results in front of you. It takes a long time to, for the, the model to predict and estimate these, these forces. Um, so you can't really use it from like a, well, I don't think it would be as effective from like a clinical perspective, but it can be definitely used for research to investigate certain things like, let's say I have a master's student at the moment that's looking at change of direction task. Uh, they're looking at muscle strength uh, using a dynamometer. So you might have seen those uh, where you're like in a chair and you're, you're trying to extend your knee, but it's stuck. And you might have seen it in the Rocky film, something like that. Um, using the strength determined from that, to see if that then has some kind of link between what actually happens during a change of direction task. Uh, and what they're doing as well is that they're going to have some form of visual stimulus, which is going to determine which way the person changes direction. So what that means is that because they've got to react to a stimulus, that's what's going to delay certain processes. And that might then change their strategy of changing direction. So quite often I know that ACL injuries are quite common in, in agility tasks, but usually it's because they have to react to something. If you put them in a, in a closed situation where, okay, run to that cone and change direction, everything seems to be quite fine. As soon as they have to react to something, that's when things uh, get worse. So maybe we can use the model to see 
what actually happens in these instances and maybe estimate what goes on in the knee, particularly at the ACL, the ligament, and maybe the muscles that are supporting it as well. So yeah, that's kind of just one example that we're, we're hoping to use it with, um, hoping to use it with, um, looking at differences within fatigue jumps based on, um, females during their menstrual cycle during the three phases of the menstrual cycle is there any changes there so would that mean would that highlight that during particular phases of the menstrual cycle women may be more susceptible to uh, certain knee injuries um, because of that so hopefully the model is sensitive to be able to pick something like that up it might not be might be not be true but it's worth investigating what does the data collection process actually look like then to to collect the the necessary data for the model to then predict so data wise we need force data from a force plate uh, we then need motion caption data from uh, uh let's say you know vicon infrared cameras uh, those act as the two inputs uh, and it takes uh, um, um, an anatomical model which it's created based on sort of geometric points which it used from a cadaver. Uh, and then it kind of imparts that anatomical model onto the uh, information that you've just given it, which is the movement data and the force data. And then it combines the two and it uses that to estimate what's happening in all of those uh, different anatomical, I'm gonna say pieces, but they're not technically pieces, but all the muscles, all the ligaments, all the, all the joint forces, that you've got in that anatomical model the force data and the the motion data then allows you to calculate what what the forces are in all those individual pieces what are the limitations of that in terms of like obviously for your phd it was walking upstairs so that's quite mm. a kind of controlled simple task relatively mm. i suppose even a be it reactive or not a cut is still fairly controlled in, in what's going on. Like where's the limitation then in, in, is there, is there a point at which like an exercise is maybe too dynamic or, or too outside of what the kind of model would be able to handle? Mm. Uh, that's a tricky one. Cause I don't fully know the, the answer, the more dynamic, the movement, the more chance that you're going to get skin artifact with the motion caption data. So when you're collecting that motion caption data, you're, you're placing sort of inf, um, reflective markers on certain points of the body. You may have seen it in, um, you know, how Lord of the, in Lord of the Rings, they use this type of software to collect movement of Gollum. It's a similar thing. And <clears throat> because they're placed on the skin, you know, that skin can move over that bony landmark. Uh, and the, the, the models assuming where that reflective marker is, is that bony landmark. So if that bony landmark is moving too much over, over it, then it's assuming that that bony landmark is in the wrong place. So you don't want too much skin artifact. So the faster you have the, the movement, the more chance that skin artifact is going to occur. So how much does that affect the model estimations? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's when we we've tested the model so far that's been in vertical jumping. Uh, so there has been some fast dynamic movements uh, and it's found to be very good in terms of change of direction stuff. It's always going to be um, adding a bit more uncertainty to it, 
but we'd like to think that okay through pilot testing we may be able to identify if there's some issues here um, the more complex the model is the more complex the mathematics are so if you've got let's say some slight mo movement at the motion uh, the markers around the hip uh, that may in turn not affect more simpler calculations but more complex calculations actually affects more they're more sensitive to that movement so that means you might think that there's a higher chance of error because of that because of the type of model you're using um, so there is a possibility of that so that's why we need to really investigate it's a bit more as to what is going on uh, we we don't know if it's effective or not until we do those those, those studies case of try it until it doesn't work and then work out why it doesn't work exactly that exactly that uh, and funny enough in my phd like i collected a number of different exercises including walking uh, and the model doesn't really like walking for some reason whenever the knee is behind the hip it then overestimates the the forces that are happening at the knee so most notably uh, in the medial side on the, the inner side um, doesn't do that when the knee is either underneath the hips or in front so that usually occurs in jumping uh, funny enough walking upstairs sitting up and down out of, out of a chair those are the times where we, we see no problems if you if you did some kind of like exaggerated lunge i think you'd see quite a few problems and we think it's some kind of error in where the model is assuming the knee joint center is compared to what the anatomical model is telling it and only seems to come about when the knees behind the hip and we haven't really figured out why that's the case quite a lot of the times with these models is that they are created to investigate one specific movement so if you create a model to measure jumping you create specific things in that model to measure jumping you don't necessarily always take that model and think, well, it can do jumping. Let's let's see if it can do this and that. Um, so ultimately, what we've done is we've taken a generic version of this model and see if it could be used with multiple different exercises. Whether that works or not, we don't know. But that's the whole point of of uh, all this investigation. Hmm. I suppose as soon as you add add elements be that other variations of movements or more complex movements. It's almost like an exponential amount, more variables that, or margin for error, at least, mm. that, that can be added into that. So I suppose the more complex it gets, the, that's probably where the simple model starts to starts to break down. It's kind of like, mm. you know, is there a unified theory that's going to be able to explain all these things? Probably not, because there's just too many variables that are associated with a very, yeah. very dynamic system. And then you place that in a dynamic environment and it all gets very messy very quickly. Well, I think we're always trying to simplify things, but it's knowing when is too simple. Mm. So it's like a reductionist approach. It's like you're trying to make some assumptions, more assumptions, more assumptions, and you get to a point where you've smoothed over everything that it's not actually investigating what you want it to investigate. So it's trying to find that balance uh, it's difficult like you said ever there's so many different factors involved like when you're at school, model all it? of them and you're doing like physics calculations and they're just like oh just ignore air resistance it doesn't exist <laughs> yeah exactly is it very much so i think they're a good example you know the areas of no the equations of constant acceleration like you're assuming that acceleration is constant where we know that acceleration if i if we went on a 100 meter race right now 
we would, our acceleration would be high and then slowly get smaller and smaller to the point we've reached max velocity so acceleration zero whereas when you're doing so basic mathematical calculations like that <laughs> it's assuming that acceleration is uh two meters per second per second from one second to four seconds yeah it doesn't really work like that but it gives you a rough un understanding as to what is going on uh adding more variables things get more complex uh, and then you can like to think that you're getting closer to the true answer um mm. moving then into like so space research i mean that's a reductionist way of, of thinking about it but explain a little bit about what what's involved in in that and what you're currently doing with it yeah so i've been very fortunate to be invited onto this project it's it's been led by again my old phd supervisor dr dan, dr glenn clever uh and uh john kennett who is a pilates instructor but he designed this uh it's like a jump sled but it's based on designs from the machines that they use in pilates um and it, yeah it isn't just some glorified pilates machine it has the everything about it is very specific and it needs to be uh, because how it works is that it's using springs so you lie down on this jump sled uh, and you push off as if you're jumping you'll have one carriage go one way and then yourself and the other carriage go the other direction and then as you do that the springs move apart and then pull you back together and what we're trying to investigate at the moment is how accurately that provides forces which are quite similar to jumping on 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 earth like we like to think that it's completely it's probably completely different but the idea is it's providing some kind of reactive forces that the body can actually uh, respond to and hopefully not degrade at such a rate so as soon as you go into microgravity and spend a long period of time there your body starts to um not wither. <laughs> I don't know why that word came into my head. But ultimately, your, your muscles start to atrophy. They get smaller and get weaker because they're not being used. They're not fighting against gravity all the time. And then because of that, your bone mineral density starts to reduce as well. And, you know, you want to try and avoid that as much as possible, because once you finish your space travel and then go back to like, go back to Earth, back in 1G again, you've got all this gravity being pulled through you and you don't have the physiological skeletal system to be able to support that then you get real bad sort of osteoporosis real bad um, musculoskeletal issues with it so we're trying to see if this jump set can actually uh, create some forces that will be able to create these reactive forces which are really needed for um, allowing the human body to regenerate itself and not degrade at such a rate um, what's quite interesting is well what we've been doing is the way the carriages work and why this is so important with the design because they go apart from each other and then towards each other there's no force getting transferred downwards okay so ultimately it's on something that's going to be attached to the structure so say for example we're going to get this jump sled in the international space uh, machine space station and we don't want any force going downwards into the structure because then that creates um, vibrations and that can actually damage the International Space Station. So what it's trying to identify is that how good is the vibration isolation? The vibrations that have been generated from jumping stay within that structure and not transferred to the rest of the spaceship because if that then happens, 
spaceship can be damaged and then <laughs> you're stuck in outer space on a damaged spaceship and you can't um, uh, fix it. So they have a treadmill there at the moment, but they can't actually run over a certain speed because of the amount of force that you do as you land, because that then affects the rest of the spaceship. So I, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's like five meters per second. It's not very fast. So it's literally just a little plod along any faster than that. You try and improve your 5k time and then all of a sudden you've ruined the international space station. So we need to find a way of exercising that will allow people to um, do jumping, ex uh, experience those forces, but isn't going to damage the ship. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's the kind of the effects of being within microgravity for long periods of time. That's, Think about like sort of popular films, media, all that kind of stuff. That's one of the mm. assumptions that's kind of glossed over is like, yeah, they spend loads of time in space, but they're absolutely fine <laughs> when yeah. they come back. And it's like in reality, <laughs> there's, there's lots of um lots of issues that that come with with that. There's a really good series called The Expanse on Amazon Prime, which I think does a really okay. good job actually of explaining um explaining it or, or including a lot of those kind of issues that come with microgravity be that from people who are actually born kind of off planet, if you like, mm. to those then that spend a long period of time there. And kind of, it's, it's quite interesting just to see you know, all these different um, effects that are actually come, people are sort of exhibiting because they have been either born or spend long, long periods of time off of Earth's gravity, I suppose. Mm. And then with those guys in the space station as well, kind of back into real life, like they obviously exhibit all those problems, but kind of not really it's just assumed that, that they don't have those issues it's like oh you just go up there you float around and you come back down and you're fine mm. but i suppose there are all those different issues that come with essentially being in a circumstance where you have no musculoskeletal loading at all mm. or minimal at best shows how essential gravity is you, you take it for granted because it's always on you and you don't see it but it really is so so important um, to try and recreate microgravity without actually being in microgravity. A lot of the studies to, to look at like reduced bone health and all that sort of thing, they do bed rest studies and they do bed rest studies, but they do it on a 6% sort of decline. So you're sort of like tilted backwards almost. And that's to recreate the sort of rush of blood to the head response um, that happens when you suddenly get into gravity because into microgravity you forget to think that gravity actually helps your circulatory system go through. So if you don't have that, then the, the blood's going to start pooling a little bit differently. Like the, the, the heart is still pumping it around your body, but it will start moving in different ways because it doesn't have gravity to assist it. So whenever you see people uh, apparently fly up to the international space ship, they get off the ship and then they, they sort of move around the international space station. They get this really puffy face and that's because all the blood is, it's, the body's not used to this yet. So the blood just starts pooling in the head. And apparently they all look a bit weird. So I've always found it fascinating. Just, you know, little things like that. You turn up into microgravity, you've been there for a few minutes, and all of a sudden you look completely different because your body's just completely responded to the fact that there's hardly any gravity around. But, a testament to how oh, quickly like the human body adapts that yeah. those that have been up there for periods of months. Mm start to essentially adapt to, to living in those like change conditions that humans are not evolved to, to live within, mm. obviously. 
we need to get better at it because if we're going to head to Mars, it's it's going to be longer than the six months mm. that they normally spend in the International Space Station. It's going to be much longer than that. So we need to find a way of keeping our astronauts in a certain physiological state because they will end up in Mars and just be in complete the, stu- the study must be, be coming where it's like, do you want to sit, sleep in a bed for two years and just stay in the bed for two years and see what happens? There must be a study coming up. <laughs> yeah. I haven't thought Volunteer of that. that. You, you, wouldn't <laughs> be, you would not be surprised if they haven't already started that. Mm. You'd have to pay the participant a lot of money to do it. It's like, we want you to spend two years in bed. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, um, it'd be interesting. Like, you'd get so bored of Netflix. What's the Real kind board. of... Yeah. What's the next steps in terms of like the the high is it high fim, high fime? High fi. High fi frequency system? for microgravity. Yeah. What's the next yeah, step? The, the next step is 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 it's still in that research and development phase. We're still trying to see. We don't actually know what jumping is like in microgravity while on that. So for example, we're already planning the procedures. Uh, for it will actually go into one of those parabolic flights where you go up and you go down and then you experience weightlessness uh, we're doing that in october but we don't know how jumping is going to be like while experiencing microgravity even though we're strapped in you know once we jump our feet might just float up and we then as we come back down to the force plate we then realize we've missed the force plate you know all sorts of things could happen we we, we just don't know so that's that's the next step is like what the hell happens on this machine when we're in microgravity have we have a good idea what happens when we're on 1g but we need to know what happens in microgravity um that is the next step and because it's a like it was designed by a pilates instructor like it it doesn't just do jumping there are a number of different attachments that you can print put onto it and then you're still using the springs as some form of resistance it can do loads of different things so that will be the next step is investigating what else we can do with it because astronauts don't have much space in spaceships so if you've got one piece of equipment that can do everything that is ideal so that's the next step it's like the uh, the gym multi-station but just in space pretty, pretty much and much smaller <laughs> yeah as long as you can do sort of pet curls or whatnot yeah i watched the they video of um i'm not sure who, like the, the video the exercise demonstrations and it looks like a pretty versatile um versatile bit of kit considering mm. it is essentially just a series of carriages that are on rollers um yeah it's a real spring attached <laughs> how I recommend everyone to sorry go ahead no i was just gonna if anyone wants to see how it works go on to hi-fi m underscore space on instagram where we've got a number of different uh, little videos on there which shows how it's used so definitely check it out how how accurately does it mimic or or simulate the kind of acceleration due to gravity that you you'd exhibit obviously if you were to jump in on earth because the springs obviously they they must act slightly differently in that sense as you said like it's not exactly the same as jumping is there is there any kind of like key differences there uh, well from limited data at the moment we have seen some differences uh if you look at the force data it does look more like a bit of like a bell curve rather than sort of the jagged land and then push off face yeah it's more sort of like a like a curve shaped so you know even though you're getting that sort of landing and push off it's not as distinct as if you did it reactionary on on land so 
that could be just the way that you jump. It could be the way that the springs are pulling you towards it. So you then absorb more and then push off a bit more gradual. Um, we still haven't really done the analysis on that, but yeah, the force traces are looking a little bit different. Um, as long as we're getting that load, uh, we'll be, we'll be very happy, but that just shows how early days this is. I suppose it's almost a, a little bit of a case of best case rather than the absolute optimal, but you could say like, well, that's not optimal, but you're testing it in one G not on the space station. So in reality, whatever's going to allow them, the astronauts yeah. to exhibit some kind of loading in a way that's not going to damage the space station or and yeah, exactly. fits all the kind of constraints they might have i suppose it's it's what's what's going to work rather than mm. what's the absolute most optimal regardless of situation mm. in some of those bed rest studies they've found that they've got a similar response to some plyometric training on something similar in just 20 to 30 minutes of training now, normally, to try and offset the degradation of the human skeletal system, astronauts train for like two to two and a half hours per day on the International Space Station. So there's a chance that incorporating these sort of jump exercises, we may be able to reduce the amount of training that they need to do by like an hour and a half to two hours. Reminds me a little bit of... Um, crazy. You know, Ross Edgley, when he swam around the UK, mm. he was what six hours on six hours off for i think it was around about six months mm. so he was kind of at sea for that period of time spent a significant chunk of his time in in the water essentially in effectively weightlessness or, or at a degree certainly unweighted to a degree because he's in the water mm. and i think yeah when he then finished that he had to go for a fairly sort of lengthy like rehabilitation process because it's like yeah i think there was some drops in bone density there was like essentially his feet stopped working <laughs> he started developing yeah, it does not surprise than, me rather than feet and all of those kind of that there was a fairly lengthy process essentially we had to learn how to walk again because mm. he essentially has been swimming for six months i suppose it's not clearly not the same but it's kind of gets that idea across doesn't it that your body mm. adapts very very much to the circumstances and situations and environment and then like in remarkable ways as well mm. i think the similarities and the differences between like a space example and the ross edgely example is that because he was like on off on off um he would have to be exposed for that for a long period of time mm. to to have similar responses which he was because i don't know how long he, it took him to swim around great britain Five or six months it was a long time yeah it was a it was a long time whereas he might have got a response that's similar to the astronauts in six months but it takes the astronauts like two weeks yeah. <laughs> um and usually you know the, the the greatest degradation to the skeletal system happens in those first two weeks of microgravity because the body's like what the hell's going on um but uh, yeah, it's quite impressive what Ross Edgley did. Mm. I've got swimming tonight, and uh, and that's and that's only an hour, and I'm dreading it. Just let alone quick, six quick, hours quick straight in the UK. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With tankers going by. <laughs> I think um, the final bit to sort of talk about then is like so your work then as a coach, so as a practitioner within SNC, like how do you how does your academic background, how does the academic work you do influence your coaching? Mm. 
I definitely don't see this as like the best way, but I just think this is a way that comes more natural to me. And I think you need to find a way of getting a bit of your personality as well as your experience into your coaching, because that's going to make you feel more natural, engaged. And if you want to get buy-in with your your athletes, you kind of need that. You don't really want to be pretending to be someone else. Um, but ultimately, I so the way my teaching has changed is that when you're new to teaching, you don't want to be seen as someone that doesn't really, you know, doesn't know certain things. Oh, someone in the audience has just caught you out or something you don't know. That's like horrifying for someone that's, you know, new to teaching. Whereas now I'm very aware of what I don't know. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. So you should be using that to your advantage. So how I tend to teach now is I explain what I know and what I don't know. And I try and get some kind of discussion going with my class to try and help figure out certain things. And I feel that openness, maybe a slight bit of vulnerability, but it, it shows that I'm engaging the people that I'm working with to try and figure out stuff together. Um, and I think people engage with that because they feel like they're learning. They're not just being told stuff. They're learning to like figure stuff out. And I kind of use something similar when it comes to coaching. I, you know, I might write up a certain program and I talk through it. So there's sort of like the education side of things. I like being a bit of an educator to try and, you know, help them understand why they're doing what they're doing. But ultimately we've got an endpoint we want to get to. This might be a goal of the, of the athletes. So there's a number of different ways we could go. There's a number of different factors which could influence the way that we go. But ultimately, because of that, I sort of take a step back as we could do this, could do this. These are unknowns here. And as soon as you start to identify unknowns and start to try and figure them out with the athlete as you go through their program with them, they start to feel more engaged because they feel they have a bit more onus, a bit more control over what they're doing. They feel part of their program rather than just like, you've got to do this. Um, so... I think that's what I do. I have a tendency to be like that when it comes to my coaching. Um, I haven't taught in, or I haven't coached in big groups for quite some time. So if I was like my friend Ben Lonergan, who is the uh, the G, uh, the SNC coach for the GB Women's Sevens team heading up into Tokyo, when you're working with such a large group of people, it, you know you're you're your approach might change, but I, you know, in the last few years I've been working one-on-one, -on -one, which I, I, which I really enjoy. And I think that allows that strategy to really sort of flourish. Um, so th that's probably where my academic and teaching background has influenced my coaching. It's, it's showing the unknowns. It's trying to figure out the direction that we want to go to together with the athlete, rather than this is what you got to do. Um, these are the reasons why here I'm educating you. It's like, it doesn't work like that. I suppose it's putting a level of autonomy back in the athlete's hands, isn't it? Mm. For their own physical development, because yeah. otherwise it is a case of just, I tell you, you do. And that's as far as it goes. The athlete doesn't necessarily understand why they're doing certain things. And I think then you probably see it in certain sports traditionally, like I think football traditionally has always had kind of a bit of a, um, has been against snc or against strength training certainly and that maybe is 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 in part due to that maybe it's just coaches athletes don't understand or haven't traditionally understood why mm. they're doing certain things 
and maybe then building into that idea of and I've talked about this in terms of outside of like athlete, athletic populations, like general population or anybody I, I work with as clients, like not many of them are kind of athletes in a kind of traditional sense, like, mm. but, but being making them understand the process, giving them autonomy in the process, not just being someone kept to there to tell them exactly what to do, like count their reps for them and all that kind of stuff, because it's like, actually they're building no ability to do any of this stuff themselves. And they don't understand it then as well. So it's like, how do you buy into a process if you don't really understand why you're doing it or the reasons behind elements in there? Mm. I mean, it's as coaches, we should probably be able to a explain why we've put elements into a program to other coaches, but also then to the client as well, or the the athlete in front of us, like explain like here's why you're doing this, mm. and actually involve them in that process, like kind of want versus need a little bit yeah there has to be that balance there you have to probably do a certain amount of stuff that you need to do versus maybe the stuff you enjoy or want to do in an ideal world obviously they'd align with each other Mm. but if you ignore the athletes wants for their needs like you're not going to create any buy-in from them they're not going to want to do the program and they're not going to understand it because they're just not going to be interested so I suppose that's the kind of probably the biggest change I've seen in my coaching over the last few years has been, as you say, that kind of making it a little bit more integrated or like having an integrated approach with the athlete, involving them in that process and it being kind of like a an element of education, yes, but also an element of like, I want to get your perspective on this and I want to understand you, but I also want you to understand the process. Mm. Yeah, I, I think doing that as well, you find more information about the athlete, which is going to help your decision making. It could be the best program in the world, but if it doesn't resonate with that particular athlete, um, it's not going to work. You, you want to get them to work at whatever you prescribe them intently. So if there's no intent, they could do the they could do the program, but it's not going to have the effect that you you'd want. So intent is everything, and I think you know getting involving them with the process so they understand where they're coming you know where you're coming from that improves the intent during the sessions and that ultimately is what's gonna create uh progression yeah definitely i always find that especially like the the clientele that you described uh, very similar to the clientele that i currently work with as well um they feel like they're getting more for their money it's not like you're you're working with an athlete who uh, you're being paid by the governing body, for example. And you know, these people are paying you directly. So the more you can give them, the better. They feel like they get their value for money. And a lot of the time it's, you know, what they want is, yeah, the program, but they also want understanding and the, that inclusion as like, okay, I'm paying this money, but I'm getting all this stuff and this assurance that I'm heading in the right direction and I'm, I'm getting some control over what I, I'm doing. I'm, you know, I to me that would be that is one of the key things that would really help develop that intent. It's because they feel that they're getting their value for money. I feel like as a when I worked in CrossFit before coming to university, I delivered so much more value to. So we had a class-based model, but we also then had one-to-one elements within that. So it was kind of like a hybrid-based mm. system that we were working with, and in those one-to-one catch-up sessions or PT sessions, whatever you want to call them, like on a monthly, six-weekly basis, I always felt so much more value in like, if we have an hour to do this session, 
I'm going to spend half an hour of it, 40 minutes, just talking to you and mm. just talking. I'm having a conversation about kind of like how things have gone, what you want to do, like your, your kind of lifestyle outside of the gym, because there's so probably so much more value in that than us spending 60 minutes working on a pull-up, which <laughs> like, yeah, we might make some technical differences in the 60 minutes. Realistically, it's probably not going to carry over past those 60 minutes anyway. And you've probably not got any real value out of that. But if I can sit down and understand you on a more personal level, mm. beyond just like reps, sets and the program, right? there's so much more value to that, I felt, than than kind of working on technical elements that are largely arbitrary anyway to mm. someone's sort of wider life or goals. Yeah. Well, I, I, almost to the point where those technical elements, they're not arbitrary anymore once you understand the athlete. Yeah. No, like the technical elements only work if you have that understanding and that relationship with the athlete anyway mm. you know they are arbitrary if you're just telling them what to do because there's probably a number of different ways you can get them to do the same thing so it is arbitrary but until you understand the athlete that's when it makes it not arbitrary even more so, so i've been working in a school for the last sort of year sort of interning as an SNC. that down at kingston yeah and that, that that's probably even more prevalent when you're then working with youth athletes because like if they don't understand why they're doing it or if they don't think that you care essentially mm. like they just don't put any effort in at all so it's kind of trying mm. to get the most out of kids who you can't really go into sort of in-depth conversations with them about why they're doing what they're doing and kind of like all the deeper stuff that you might talk with kind of adults or or kind of older individuals because they just don't they don't care they don't understand that kind of stuff so the mm. conversation is not gonna it's not gonna work so mm. it's, yeah it's very interesting kind of like making that transition into that and seeing how actually if you can get them engaged in it and make them understand why they're doing it as a larger part because all they want to do is just play sport they don't really care what they're <laughs> doing they just want to do stuff they want to be involved they want to play sport they want to and that's like kind of taking that idea of like rep sets and kind of very black or white thinking about S and C and kind of turning it on its head a little bit and being like, actually creating buy-in from this individual is the most important part because if they don't buy in, mm. if they don't have any intent and behind what they're doing, like the actual program doesn't matter because they're going to get much, much less from it than if you actually got them to buy in and they then enjoyed what they were doing and actually wanted to be there and, put the intent in behind what they're doing yeah i'd also recommend to people based on what you're saying that they should write down all the things they think are important and then rank them because it goes to the point where you just said ultimately unless you get that buy-in the program doesn't mean anything so then you start to list all the things in order as to what's important and that i think helps people develop their own sort of philosophy around how they approach things because you are determining what are the most important things so these are all important but all of these things here do not matter unless these three things are in place then you get your own you get your own approach you start to understand what is important and then it changes your uh, perception of what is needed so, so i definitely recommend that Pareto principle isn't it? it's the 80 20 it's like the 80% of the results probably come from 20% of the, the things you're doing. 
So it's like if you can identify what those 20%, what the priority, the three or four priorities are, mm. and double down all your efforts on those ahead of maybe just the scattergun shotgun approach of just trying mm. to do a little bit of everything, mm. you'd probably make a lot more progress overall in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So uh, conscious of time here, but um, last bit before we, we finish up then, where if you want to be found, where can people where can people find you? Uh, so I can be found on uh, at the Pricep. That's the same as uh, on Instagram as it is on Twitter. Uh, I'm more prevalent on Instagram, to be honest. I don't do too much with Twitter. Normally, I've just I just post. If I've published a paper recently, I put that on Twitter. I should probably do more on it. Um, on top of that, I run my own sort of podcast show as well uh, at the Progress Theory. So check out that where we try and. Yeah, similar similar things to your doing, Kieran, which is discussing sort of scientific principles and how we can apply them to like human performance. It's it's trying to understand sports science and you know clear out all of the unknowns and there's so much weird misinformation out there and it's really become very prevalent since the COVID started. So it's just allowing an opportunity to discuss these certain principles what we believe to be true, what could be improved, what we believe to be false, all that sort of thing, and see how we can use this information to make decisions and how we can improve either training for like a, a challenge, a sport, or maybe just improve quality of life. So uh, yeah, any listeners that are interested in human performance, definitely check out the progress theory. No, it's great. I've listened to quite a few of the episodes and yeah, there's some real, really great information that you you talked about and obviously all your sort of various guests you've had on as well i've talked about all right cheers kieran awesome so thanks for making some time to come on today it's uh, it's been been fun to chat no it's been brilliant cheers kieran thank you very much okay guys that's it for another episode thanks for listening check below for all the relevant links and notes from today's episode or search for us on social media at apex delta coaching one quick thing before you go if you want to get stronger and build a solid foundation to improve on in the future and check out the eight-week general strength training program we've released at the link below. This program focuses on the big movement patterns across four weekly training sessions to make you a stronger, more capable athlete while still feeling good alongside that. Follow the link down in the show notes to get all the details or search for our Instagram to find out more about this. Lastly, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or let us know personally. Any and all feedback is greatly appreciated and it helps to grow the podcast further. Thanks for listening, keep training and talk soon.